We are also in chat. Holy crap. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Craig, you weird serial killer robot. <laughs> I, I love our weird serial killer robot. They're very... Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Flow Forward. This is your host, here, Rob. Joining me tonight are three fabulous compatriots. Fabulous friend. I should do everything with Fs. You did that earlier today, didn't you? I did. I did. There should be four of you, because then it would be better. I could say four fabulous friends. Usually is. Some, somewhere around there. Anyway, Catrice is with me tonight. Hi, Catrice. Hello, sort of. Jonathan's here tonight. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Hello. And Kevoir is joining us tonight. Hello, Kevoir. Hello to those of you who can witness me, etc. That sounded probably a little more esoteric than you were meaning. No. Witness me. <laughs> No, really, no, there, there's a... But also, we are in the chat, so if you're in the Twitch stream, you can chat with us. Oh, god damn it. Okay, so I know who's chat now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't worry, anybody who's can looking... Can I rename you? Let me see, how do I do this? No, I don't think you can rename people on Twitch. Oh, it's got the moderator, you have the moderator badge, though. Yep. No, we all have except for maybe <laughs> Jonathan. He's here, but I don't think he is. Anyway. Uh, our topic tonight. <laughs> which we which we did actually have organized which, in advance. Contrary did. to contrary to what this sounds like. In fact, it was so organized that we put it off for a week, like five minutes after we were going to have the topic. It's true. <laughs> Oh, my quesadilla is here. Oh, my goodness. Homemade tortilla. Homemade tortilla. Ew. Oh, my wife's the best. This is not fair. <laughs> I suppose. Hey, if you guys want to come over, you guys can have quesadillas too. <laughs> Drunk. I don't Canada. think I don't. <laughs> I don't think coming over is a very good idea at the moment. Is what I'm going to just say. That's also a good point. We're still. Uh, well, actually, no. Half of it. She's vaccinated. So. No, oh, that's nice. It's nice. Yeah, we're. we're... I, I don't. I still don't think I'm going to try to uh, break border security just for the sake of it. Although I. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even leave my province. Yeah. Yeah, you have that nice isolated province, don't you? <laughs> or something. I forgot. Yeah, they've locked everything off. But we have zero cases. So Oh, yay. wow, good job. You're doing much better than us. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Doing way better than us, too. Whee! <laughs> better is in quotation marks. It's not hard to reach zero cases if nobody wants to go here. And there's nobody here already. That's a good like point. You actually need people nearby. You say that, but uh, you can't. But you're actually beating like the Northwest Territories, and who wants to go there? But that's like the Texas of Canada, right? Uh, no, <laughs> no. Oh, 
It has like Antarctica. The, the, yeah, that's that is literally the Arctic. Yeah, yeah. half the people there are probably research scientists. Uh. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know much about Canada. I've we we need to fix that at some point because you know way too, because you interact with way too many Canadians. But I don't, I don't. we should actually start on the topic. Oh yeah, that'd be a good idea too. The topic which we were going to get to before my quesadilla showed up. Um, <laughs> growth scaling in RPGs, both where you start from and the upper limits of the system, and how you get from A to B to C, which is super relevant. That word whiteboard right back there was full of. The how you play, how you do that in Ashes. So I'm just like finally getting to a point where I bet it is working the way I want it to. And uh, I'm pretty happy about that. And so now I just have to, uh, uh, now I do all the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now you just have to make it into something that's comprehensible by at least a small portion of the human beings. Yeah, a niche within a niche within a niche within a niche is who I'm targeting. Yep. Yep. Nobody knows. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway. So yeah, how how do you how do you uh, scale growth in RPGs? Do RPGs need growth scaling? Do they need nope. it? Because I, because I, I can think of a very uh, very recent uh, example of a game that uh, doesn't do that. And it freaked me out. It yeah. game really freaked fun. me out when I read uh, Under Hollow Hill. Oh, you know, yeah. What does this game do? Does this game That's the one I was expecting you to mention, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> no, there's, there's... You don't need it, but... The is issue a... is... You're going to say it before? You, uh, you're probably the same thing you're going to say, but... You know, I guess I've already interrupted you. Uh, so, yeah, you don't need it, but you definitely need some type of incentive in place of it or a tight enough experience where growth isn't expected is how I would sum things up. It, it's, it's the most common. It's something that people expect and something that is very easy to get people to cling on to. And Catrice, you can talk now. I would slightly disagree with that. I would say that... One of the main parts about RPGs, like especially if it's going to be a game that has multiple sessions to it, is progression. Like that's one of the big psychological um, itches that gets scratched is the progression for the players over time. Mm -hmm. If you're only doing one shots, then it's not that big a deal. But if you're gonna have like, you know, characters playing, being used for, an extended period of time, you kind of want those characters to somehow progress. It doesn't necessarily have to be through game mechanics. It doesn't necessarily have to be vertical progression where they're actually getting stronger, but they do have to change from where they are to be somewhere else. Yes, <laughs> movement is important. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. Even, even Hall, under Hollow Hills has that, you change. It's not yeah. necessarily, like you said, vertical growth, uh, but it is. Uh, there is something happening uh, quite pointedly 
to the character as they do things. Yeah, um, I would say that under Hollowed Hills, they definitely have the aspect of there. You are progressing in. It's just you're basically progressing almost in like a circle. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, literally, the circle, it, right? They they call it like multiple pinwheels. Yeah, but yeah. It, it is technically still a form of progression. It's just not progression in the way that you're normally used to. Right. Yep. So I'm. I don't think it really counts as a game that doesn't have progression. It just has a weird, specific form of progression. Yes, but. Yeah, I think something that is extremely helpful to sort of negate uh, the more traditional progression or advancement is uh, like uh, player goals Mm -hmm. Um, or player driven goals, not just like something that they might pick out from the game, but like uh, um, them being able to pick a specific goal to their player or to their character that they want to achieve. And uh, the story can go a lot of places without sort of any mechanical change Mm -hmm. to the character. Um, Right. I think that like also tracking non-mechanical change, like so story growth on the character sheet is helpful to sort of assist that too. So that um, despite, you know, not necessarily having that advancement, there's something there for the player to look back to and then with the goal like something to look forward to right um i i mean i i think games should that's what games should mechanize if they're going to mechanize anything back there (laughs) um but that's that to me if the game's not supporting it you you might be using the wrong rule set for the story you're trying to have you see what I'm saying? Like people try and do like big political games and stuff like that in D and D all the time, and it works just fine. Like I'm not saying it doesn't work. It's, I'm saying it does work, but there's no mechanical like nothing, quote unquote. If you were to take a character sheet at the start of that session and the character sheet at the end of that session, you may not know that anything happened, right? And that's because the mechanics of D and D don't care about that part they assume that part's going to happen by virtue of the players enjoying being their characters and like wanting to move in the world as their characters but it does so it doesn't think it needs to incentivize it at all right so so it just sort of wants that to happen like on top of the rule set and the rule set is all about killing stuff for the most part and then rolling skill checks which are like you can think of those as stuff that dies in one hit to get past yeah, the thing. That doesn't give you experience. <laughs> right, right. But, but, they're, um, but they're, they're usually set up as gates to get, like they're set up as yeah. you can't progress until you, until you do enough hits to this thing. Uh, and so if the story is not really about doing hits to something, it's you, you're, there's no scaffold for the story to be built on. So you just sort of have to go to the place where you're all imagining it together and sort of working out the outcomes as they make sense, but not really. But the downside to that is that, that, that can fail quite easily. If some, if the GM suddenly starts deciding that things are happening a particular way and the players are really confused. 
right? Because it doesn't seem like their actions are coming into account. And yeah. because the system doesn't mechanize that, there's no, there's no arbitrator between them and the GM's vision. And so you get this disconnect. And I think that's a frequent problem that I see on forums and whatnot, like people talking about like, it's railroading, right? <laughs> when your actions don't have any impact on the story and it, the, the thing just keeps going and you're like, wait a second, are our choices mattering here? And I think it's the lack of mechanical substrate for that kind of stuff that lets, it lets people get off the same page uh, because there's no orienting mechanic. Like treating, <laughs> treating dice as an orienting mechanic, I think kind of makes sense. It's like, here's, here's where we're going to agree that something happens. I don't think it's necessary for it to be mechanized, but it certainly helps like to organize things so that you don't wind up with that but part of that is going to inevitably be an issue with the gm who can override any system anyway right, right. so like if you get a gm who they want to write a book and they don't realize that they should be writing a book and they try to play a game instead and the players are just there to be narrated to rather than right. being part of it. Well, unfortunately, you are working in the wrong medium, but you don't know it. Right. Well, because the idea is that you should be doing crafting the situation and not not crafting what happens. Right? right. You don't want to be dictating what happens. You want to play to find out what happens and then uh, and describe the situation, but don't but don't if the story depends on a particular outcome of the situation, you're stuck you, or you can get stuck, right? Because you've, you've assumed something that is an outcome that the player should have had agency in. And if you assume an outcome, then the players don't have agency in that moment. And you can get pushed into a position where you don't know what happens next because you didn't write for the second choice to happen. Well, so, actually, to tie this back into our topic, the agency thing actually is kind of important for this because mm -hmm. it's not just like the growth of your character, the progression, like if they get levels, if they get stronger, or they gain more breadth of the things that they can do, more specializations, whatever. All of this basically is saying to the player in a rather quantified form that your character can do more stuff they have more agency in the world like if you gain a level in dnd it's mostly combat stats but it's basically saying here's new abilities you have new stats you have when you go into combat you have more agency over what you can do in combat and you have more direction on the outcome of what happens so I, I think all of this basically does tie into the concept of player agency, really, in the end. Yeah, it's interesting um, that how you kind of laid out like advancement in D anD D and and sort of in, in you know, often in general. Um, because once I started game designing, either slightly before or slightly after I started, like I realized like the real 
or at least how I picture progression is more about um, how do I create the perception of advancement? Mm-hmm. Um, because in truth, the play isn't changing. So, uh, right. because I, I don't like, um, try to avoid D and D, uh, so I'll talk about blades in the dark, but, but if we, there's things that blades in the dark does in various ways. Um, but in any game, like what we're taking down or whatever challenge we're interacting with, um, is want to be like exciting with a certain certain possibility of a bad outcome Mm -hmm. and we really don't want that to change throughout the game as game designers as players too but players we don't really acknowledge that but as game designers we should acknowledge that like we we actually want that level of play maintaining consistency throughout the game um we don't want to be overpowered or underpowered Generally speaking, at any time, of course, we can the game can be allowed to push harder or pull back, mm-hmm. but we generally want like a consistent play. Um, and that's what becomes really weird about D&D uh, and many games where it's like. There becomes like uh, certain situations that become sort of like impossible, like you can't challenge like no one character can challenge you at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like no innkeeper can stab you in the back when you're like level ten or whatever. Like it just right. it doesn't it doesn't matter, right? Um, and uh, in in Blades in the Dark, uh, it it's kind of similar, but uh, but I think Blades in the Dark and other games too sort of acknowledge this and they say, you know what, you're gonna you're gonna play around your tier. Um, you guys are going to be tiered and that that's going to mean something mechanically. Um, so whenever you're fighting your tier, it's like an even fight. Whenever you're fighting out of it, if you're fighting up, you, you're at a, like some disadvantage. Um, and when you're fighting above, you're at an advantage. And the further up you fight, the more sort of more of a disadvantage you're at. Um, so it becomes like you, you fight within a range and so high up the range is impossible and so low down the range is not worth it and that's kind of like D, but in the sense of with the tiers you don't have to redesign um uh monsters uh or bad guys you just have to bump their tier up it's the you know if you're fighting a blue coat it's just now it's a tier two blue coat instead of like a tier zero or tier one or whatever um and that sort of allows you to uh i think this that tiering program gets rid of this like uh deciding what how to create how dms need to try to create challenges further on on uh i don't know if yeah. it's really unique but it does sort of solve that problem yeah I, it's it's weird to me because that's how fourth edition did it basically it was like here's the because the the math was so tight on fourth edition you were expected to be within only a couple of points of a particular baseline. And then you could just put the monsters right there and the encounter would go pretty much pretty good every time. And then if you moved them up one, right? Uh, or even two, 
player two levels above the player, then it was like, oh, okay, this is re- this could be really tough type thing. But it, you're just adjusting the numbers, and then <laughs> believe a certain thing, you would just not bother. It it, it did a certain it, it tiered, but it was a sliding tier, so it wasn't. It kept moving with the players, the, just the way it does in Blaze in the Dark. Um, I think I think the tier system in Blaze in the Dark just does the same thing the fourth edition did, just much simpler. Mm-hmm. So, and like I've never played Blades in the Dark in an extended sense, but I wonder, and I wonder if this was a problem, something that added into the problem of uh, or perceived problem of fourth edition was like sameness, um, or predictability for the players. Um, I, I can't claim to know all the challenges that fourth edition had. But those are things that I've heard. I never played it. Oh, no, but, I, uh, I, I, I can enumerate them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but was, like, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, well when you're like playing uh, fifth edition or any other D&D, it's like really the creatures that exist create their own challenge uh, in game. But if it's too calculated and you're sure that you will or won't succeed, then maybe that was detrimental to fourth edition. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like it, for, for some people it was. Um, I think it was trickiest when the fight didn't have a good story behind it. Yeah, that's when it felt the most like just like a, mechanical thing but if you're using the fight to adjudicate like which side won something then it was pretty interesting because then you had a goal other than other than just knocking everybody down to zero hit points and i think that's still the case in 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 any edition of D, but it's like it was very stark and forth particularly it was you had to have you it really i mean for me it forced me to put a good story on an encounter otherwise it would just feel really dull so i don't know if that was their intent but uh it did it did expose that it it was a pretty i i don't know i guess i think i'm just reiterating what you're saying that you heard about people playing fourth edition was that there was uh it felt uh samey and I think it put more of an onus on the GM to to mask the sameness behind other stuff. Uh, but it also, for me, it it freed me up to focus on that other stuff because I knew the math of the encounter was was very predictable. So it wasn't like I was running a third edition game where the challenge rating system was, you know, eyeballing it according to the designers. And you could, you know, if, if there was a particularly egregious weakness in the party that that something could exploit, it might be way more challenging than it was supposed to be. And you could have, you know, you could be running the game as written and then finding yourself either killing players or having to fudge the dice a lot. Uh, and that, neither of those really feels good. Um, so fourth edition for me, like it's it's tight sort of predictable combat allowed me to open up the story potential of a, of a combat much more readily because I knew it was easier. It was easier to, to make a combat easier or harder 
This actually goes back to something that Jonathan was saying at the start of that mm-hmm. was the um the agency thing about like players wanting to have the capacity for there to be like a bad ending or things to not go the way they wanted. But I think the important part of that is not that players don't really seem to enjoy it when the bad ending is arbitrary and random, like determined by the dice. It's like, well, you keep rolling one, so I guess he died. That's (laughs) not really the thing that they enjoy. It's they want the agency so that when they make a decision, it actually has an impact on what happens. And if they make dumb decisions on a regular basis, then those are going to come and bite them back in the ass because, well, you decided to do this. This is what happens when you do this. It means that you actually had a change on the outcome. Something actually mattered. You did something. And that also kind of ties into like the progression thing as well because when you see like bigger enemies like when you're fighting a dragon instead of a kobold when you're fighting the kobold at the start of the game usually it's like they auto attack and then the next turn they will auto attack they don't have a whole lot of options available to them when you get like the big dragon involved in things dragon has options it it's smarter it has more tools at its disposal it's not just that it has bigger numbers it's that it has more agency and because there's more agency on the enemy you have more potential options for you to screw up when dealing with that enemy but you also have more agency yourself because there's more things for you to interact with so as you make the enemies stronger it's not just that they're stronger it's that they have more stuff that you can do with that enemy so you're okay i see what you're saying so expanding right so you're giving your okay so in the first fight with a kobold right the gm has certain permissions which is like at most let's sling spear Maybe one of the kobolds throws alchemist fire or does trap things or something like that. Yeah. Let's just say. And then in and the and the GM therefore does not have much agency to affect the players outside of stealing agency, which is like rocks fall, you all die type stuff, which is I think I think we can all agree Actually, it's just yeah. like theft. Um and in the later fight with the dragon, the GM has way more agency because it can attack with all its limbs it can breathe some sort of elemental attack or even something weird sleep gas who knows uh probably has spells that can spells, fly right it's, it's like oh it, it might have a or it might have you know it, it might be a white dragon that knows how to sh- cast fireball it, if you're fighting it in its own den it's probably set up some kind of traps or something mm-hmm. you know these kind oh, of things yeah. but sure. if but the more thing agency is, is the point the agency more, more is important the players. because, but because you have more agency for the enemy, the players also have more agency because they're higher level, but the gameplay comes from the interaction. So 
if both sides have more agency, they have more interactions possible. So that means you have more total agency going on. If you only really have one option, which is I attack the Cobalt because I only have one spell, I guess I'm going to magic missile it because what else am I going to do? I mean, yeah, I did right. not think to have sleep prepared today. So those are my options. I can magic missile or I can sleep in. Um, that's not a lot to work with because there's not agency on their side and there's not agency on your side. There's not really a lot of potential outcomes. Whether they're good or bad almost doesn't matter because it's like you didn't really choose anything because there wasn't really any choices to be made. Yeah, I I get what you mean. And I think what you are describing, like an effect of advancement um, or a way of uh, um, creating advancement. But mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily agree that um, more options equals more agency uh, in the sense of like... Not always, no. In, in this case anyway, or at least in your example, um, I find that... Uh, we're still talking about like dragon combat, you know, whatever, you know, big, strong character with big, strong enemy. Um, it could be more interesting <laughs> and it could be more, but I don't think it's like there's more agency there. Like once you enter that, that engagement, if you choose to enter it in like a combat sense, then that's it. Uh, you're sort uh, of still in I that. In the sense that there's, potential for you, you to express agency not necessarily that they're guaranteed well, will be i think there's potential to express options or differences or like you you have the ability to i'm just saying it doesn't make you more in control of your situation or you're not in more control than the first level character i mean because actually a first level character can also fight a dragon um there's nothing stopping that uh they can only do it within the context of their character but they can still do that they don't have less agency in that situation I, okay I, let me uh push back a little bit because i think uh, let me explain it like this um we're talking about agency in the sense of i have more than one tool to address the the fictional situation the game gives me a certain a, fiction, a fictional toolkit, and it says these are the things you are allowed to do, rather than here's the stuff you can't do. Right? Yeah, I, so, I guess I'm, you a, I'm just. I guess I understand, and I just I th I'm not sure agency is the right term to use for that. No, no, I, I yeah. see your point, I, and I see your point because. What you're also saying, in a sense, is that yes, you have all of these things. You have the the the, the different attacks, the different whatever you have that can, you can do differently on your character sheet. At any point, you can also say, "Hey, wait, stop!" Uh, I want to give it tummy here's, rubs. Here's something you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> tummy rubs, right? You always have that option. Yeah, I think Kat and I would both agree that that's definitely the case, and that's sometimes where some of the best fun comes from. 
But what we're saying is when the game is doling out agency in terms of you can do this in a fight and you can do this in a fight and you can see 60 feet in the dark and you can, you know, uh, you are carrying a heavy in Blades in the Dark, right? Like one of the ways Blades in the Dark doles out agency is your load. And that's like, you have these tools and D&D does it in the same way. You have these tools here's you can you can have an effect on this situation because the fiction says so i i I think both those things are the same agency but they don't they're not the same they're not the same x axis of agency they're they're a different kind of agency from just the purely fictional i can do anything in an rpg yeah yeah i think there there's definitely a i don't know if it works of using the same term for both of them I think yeah. we might have run into yet another situation, as we seem to do so often on this, where we need more terminology that doesn't exist. <laughs> it's fine. I'm sure the terminology exists, just uh, not very many of us are fluent in the... Uh, how should I put this? Lexicon? On a video game. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm just... Because this well, defines... Video a games don't have that kind of <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like it's unique to RPGs. Like that's yeah. But these two types of agency can both exist in video games. Anyway, I just want to read this because it it defines it better for me than I have. Okay. Uh, So, in social science, agency is defined as the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices. So, in the sense of like, it's it's not a matter of having. Um, a bunch of skills or weapons or spells having those available to me doesn't give me more or less agency but being allowed to use them um, in the in the context of the game like uh, that that is my agency can I choose to use the tools as I choose Um, so like it's sort of like two things going together. My agency as a player is everything that I'm allowed to do um, independently, sort of of my own free will. But my skills are separate of that. Well, the, the one thing I was trying to get at is there is a limiting, re- like a bottleneck to your agency. Like if you only have one tool, it's like, you have a hammer. This is the only thing you have access to. You better hope that everything is a nail. Because if it's not a nail, you don't have the agency to choose anything else other than hit it with the hammer. Because all you have is a hammer. Now, if you add in other options, then okay, now you can choose between those options what to do with that. That's all I meant by it. Yeah, I, I get I get what you're saying. I just I just I guess maybe we're beating a dead horse because I'm saying one thing and you guys are yeah. agreeing. Um, but yeah, also sort of like arguing in a different way. But I, yeah, I just I, talk, I just I like talk, agency <laughs> described as, you know, the ability to act independently and make your own free choices. You, yeah. Having my, a gun or a sword doesn't give you more agency. Well, yeah, not inherently other than, like, 
you have to be able to make your free choices. If you do not have any choices available, you can't make a choice. Like, yeah. if there's no viable options, like, if you're standing downrange from somebody with heavy machine gun emplacements and you have a sword, you don't have a whole lot of choices there. You're right. And, and if I was DMing that game, my point would be to the players is that um, what I would be trying to express is, is that um, you're not ready for this or um, uh, this isn't the right direction. <laughs> like there's things that I'd be trying to express if I put that situation in front of them. Um, and in a way that's like a DM tool to sort of like basically remove agency but in a sense you're not though like it 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 doesn't change the fact that the player can do those things and and i guess i'm i'm arguing out of both sides of my mouth um because i would take that argument (laughs) another way and say that that's totally removing agency um Mm -hmm. but uh but also like i think because you created the situation um I, I was trying to use it. Uh, I was just trying to express, yeah. I guess, mostly that uh, first player, first level character fighting a kobold or a 20th level character fighting a dragon. N- no one has less agency in those situations. They just have more actions or less actions or more abilities or less abilities. Are, are Okay, then are not the set of actions you can possibly take commensurate with agency? No, it's only no. that you ha- you can act freely to take those actions. Yeah, I'd say it's not necessarily the same, but there is some correlation between them. I but it's not a relationship. But it's, I think there's a relationship. I don't think they're entirely separate from one another, but I don't think they're the same thing either. Like, there is some influence that to be held. Yeah, I agree. And Monty has joined us. Hey, Monty. Hey. Hey. I feel like we we should get back onto the topic. (laughs) Yeah, I think we were actually kind of, we needed to cover that to get back into the topic, which is that. (laughs) We spent half an hour too long on it. (laughs) No, no, it's fine. No, we only spent about. 10 minutes on it that's fine that's well within our standard threshold for wandering off topic but okay okay so to get back to the topic then since we're basically talking about to fill monty in on this as well um we're basically talking about like the concept of you know progression potentially leveling power levels like where do you start from where do you wind up that kind of thing and a lot of this does boil down to some form or another of agency in terms of like what options do the players have access to what can they viably do to change what's going on like if you run into a situation and you can't do anything about it you don't have a whole lot of agency there if you give people more options like 
they gain a few levels and okay, you've got more tools at your disposal. You now have tools that can deal with this situation. You basically have more things that you can actually interact with in the game world. So So I'll I'll sort of bring hopefully bring it to the beginning by talking about the beginning. How do we decide um where to start uh characters in any given game or when we're designing a game and and what are some things that we can do to um make the players feel like their character isn't necessarily beginning at the beginning that's waiting for this one because i was thinking about it previously and it's something that Rob actually brings up occasionally about D&D, that it starts off as survival horror, <laughs> and then it changes into a superhero game eventually. And it's like, I think the main thing that you're think that's going to determine it is what kind of a game you want it to be at the start. Like, do you want this to be just normal people thrown into a situation that's very taxing on them and actually kind of scary or do you want this to be you are actually a competent combatant to begin with and you move outwards from there Mm -hmm. because i think that's going to be like the primary thing that drives your initial starting power level not necessarily just like your physical strength like can you fight a dragon but more like how many tools do you have at your disposal to start out with? Are you just somebody who's not really competent in very many things, but there's maybe one thing you're really good at? Or are you basically starting from the ground up and you have to earn your tools? Or do you have, do you start off with a pretty good range of tools to begin with? Anyway, sorry. So those are the questions. What are the answers? I was going to say, I definitely agree that um, it really all depends in the setting and the, and where you start, like, like where you want to start. Um, I know personally, I like running games kind of back from the beginning. I, I grew up playing, you know, Final Fantasy and JRPGs and the people a lot of times in those games are just random schmucks off the street that suddenly get thrown into like, Oh, you must go save the world. And you're like, like, (laughs) that's, that's heavy dog like that's that's the that's the kind of games i like running because that's my you know my background as a player um but uh but yeah i i think it all depends on the setting and the the setting and where and where you want to start as the gm i want to give two quick examples from final fantasy just because you mentioned it because they actually were pretty good contrast to each other. And it actually set up the stories that you were dealing with very well. So first Final Fantasy Tactics, you start off as like, you're not actually a knight, you're a cadet. So you're literally a student learning to be a knight. Like you're not even a proper squire at the moment. So you start off and the game is really brutal at the very start of the game like it's maybe 50 50 that you even possibly can win 
a given random battle if it occurs. Like, it's really brutal in that way. Whereas if you look at something more mainstream, like the original Final Fantasy VII, it was like, your character started off as like this kind of badass hero that it's like everybody else looks up to you as being like so much better than them and you start the game literally at like level seven and you're fighting like level one enemies just to point out and stress that your character is that much better than everybody else yeah i think seven's seven's both good and bad example because like well the main character like arguably cloud being the main character is definitely uh it's definitely someone who is you know wanting to be pointed out as a badass um all the people that are with him a lot of them are just random random joe schmoes or they have some minor history some with some stuff but they are on an equal ground as him um in terms of like where they start as well they eventually catch up to him but they all start at a lower level like all of like even barrett who's trying to boss you around at the very start it's like he starts at like level four or five and he's like oh you think you're such like a badass you, you don't think you have to play by the rules i don't actually trust you and he just flat out tells you that i'm going with you because i can't trust you to not like just start making bad decisions that's going to blow our cover but anyway it's like these are two good extremes that I think actually work for like you could start a tabletop role playing game easily from either of those positions, and they would both make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it there's there's uh, one of the big gaps in power. I think you often see are like in super games. Where you have like street level supers, uh, you know your Batman's, your Daredevils, and and then your big Omega level supers, your your Dark Phoenixes, your your uh, Supermanses, um, and supers games generally try to accommodate both of those things. Uh, I think. Uh, it's really hard to make it work. <laughs> oh, some, there's some super games that do. I think the Fate one, um, uh, this name escapes me, is it Masks? Anyway, um, does a really good job because it doesn't, uh, doesn't need those things to be that like far apart in power level to accurately convey the fiction of them. Like they do the fiction stuff in in other ways and the power levels like there's a more one-to-one -one relationship between power level and agency in in fate so mm -hmm. it's, it's like the numbers are very much rating how much fictional agency you're going to have in this situation not how good your character is at it um yeah, so, I so I think it's a good job like condensing power levels into stuff because it actually says like this is your agency amount not your how strong you are at this amount and that makes uh, a lot more yeah. sense to do it that way because if you look even at like 
supers like TV shows or movies or whatever. Like, they actually have to deal with that. Like, if you look at, like, the X-Men movies, for example, they've run into the problem with, well, you're a relatively weak character, so we'll give you one scene in which you're really useful, <laughs> where your one power is actually good for doing something, and then, yeah, that, that was your scene. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Great. But there you go, right? So you, in order to not have that kind of game, because nobody would want to play in that game, that would be a terrible game to play in. Like, you get to do one thing every session. Uh, it's like, yay, my turning milk to cheese ability came in handy again. No, uh, not every session. Just that that's in the campaign. You get to do your one thing in the campaign. <laughs> yeah, but you see, this this only works in a movie because you're covering all of the different characters and you have a main protagonist probably and you don't need to give equal screen time to all of the players because they're not actually players I, I know but i'm saying like that's the kind of game you want to run You're, you want to be inclusive of everybody at the table as much as possible so you want you want the agency to be relatively well distributed even yeah. when you're leveling up uh, particularly when you're leveling up because one of the things that can happen is one player it is possible to get to get more agency than the other players in that scenario like and that's i think uh what people are referring to when they um talk about how spellcasters can basically win in an edition particular edition of let's say third edition dungeons and dragons <laughs> that's the one where spellcasters win um it's the the spellcasters are good at have wide amounts of agency because they can effectively substitute for other classes through their spell list and so that doesn't feel good because they're become they're the, the game is effectively saying there's an agency discrepancy between these two character classes um even though even though to jonathan's point earlier that the that the fighter still has the ability to do all these things that are not on their character but well, that's thing... the case. Like you, the game is saying, like, oh yes, you can be a fighter, and also the wizard can be a fighter if they do this, this, and this. So there's there's a problem when it happens because you are giving one player the ability to cover for the other player, and that's not reciprocal. So well, that's, see, that's something that I learned very, very early on in video game design was that. When something's unbalanced, it's not usually because the numbers are skewed or too high or too low. It, the numbers might be part of the issue, but it's usually because one of the characters or classes or whatever has too many things that they're capable to, of doing that they do not have any weak points. They can do something in every situation the character that gets too high of a stat the reason why they become broken is because either that stat gets so powerful that they can simply bludgeon every single situation they come <laughs> across with that one stat mm -hmm. but it's like you know the the orc thief where it's like I don't know how to pick a lock, but I was able to just punch the door down, so problem solved. 
it's like if your strength stack gets too high to the point that you can use strength in every single situation you come across, that's when it becomes a problem. It's not that the strength stat itself is too high and that's the issue. It's that it becomes a universal thing that you can always apply in every situation. Or it fills so many of the blanks. Like you have like some advantages, some disadvantages. If you have your advantage so high that you don't really need to worry about choosing whether to make your strengths stronger or your or to cover your weaknesses if your strength is so ridiculously high it's like well i guess i'm just gonna plug all my weaknesses because i don't need any more in that strength like that's that's where all the balance issues come from okay i was kind of following you up until that last point but we'll just pass that sorry (laughs) so i mean it just might be easier for discussion to sort of like broadly accept balance as a given even though it like almost never is uh but uh (laughs) like i think like because we talked about sort of starting from a zero level or or the beginning that's relatively easy um in role-playing games because we don't have to do any sort of um uh character building outside of that because then it's really easy to start at the beginning when we're starting at the beginning um so like i'd say like a failure of D, for example is that it's not actually starting at the beginning like it says that your fighters are competent they're actually like uh sort of special in the world they're supposed to exist as characters at level one that are outside of the normal they're not your normal soldiers are not your normal magic user. There's something special. Um, but no that's one feels that it, way about level one characters. That's what it says, but, yeah, but it doesn't so, really help when the town guard starts at level three. But they, it doesn't matter. Um, it's true to a certain degree, but like that, that's the point is like the, saying it doesn't make it so, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It, it takes a little more than just saying it. So what else can we do to create um, the perception of starting at an advanced uh, level um, as opposed to just literally starting at an advanced level? Hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it would be something like making at that point you're tuning the math of the game to be more forgiving fundamentally right so yeah so that's what it would look like i mean it would be something like if you wanted to make that the case in uh let's say dungeon dragons fifth edition where you're 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 you still have only one hit die at first level and you know a bugbear can take you out you know or it's very easy to to have a roll go sideways and then you're in big trouble at first level um one of the things you could do as dm is say like okay uh enemies just do minimum damage until third level let's say <laughs> then they start rolling for it 
Um, and that would make them feel the impact of the enemy when they hit would be uh, probably more commensurate with what um, the characters are expecting to have happen. So if, 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 even when you're, you're starting out with D&D and you, the first time, you know, you take a damage roll and it's maximum and you're a rogue, right? Like it's a, here's a D10. Oh, roll a 10 and you're at negative four. Oops. That's happened. I mean, <laughs> so many times like to, in ga- games I've played, it's like thing that happens. But yeah. it, it's like you could say, okay, that just does one damage. And then the rogue would feel like a confident, like back. this is a back and forth, not rocket tag. Right, because yeah. the rocket tag is with the element that makes you feel weak, like losing it one hit, um, uh, makes you feel weak in a game like that. Where that you know, by the time you're like third, fifth, sixth level, like it does fights are back and forth. We're like I'm, we're trading damage. We're we're there's a more of a flow of combat, more of a tug of war rather than just rocket, rocket tag. Um, and yeah. so I think I guess I. Just kind of asking questions and trying to lead people to, I guess, leave D and D. We seem to be stuck there, but I, um, actually... I would jump to right to like Blades in the Dark. Like one thing, like there's no hit points first of all, mm-hmm. so you never increase. Like you don't gain that power, so you're quote as tough as you ever will be in a sense, right? You kind of do. You get special armor. Yeah, it's true. Like you can have armor differences. But that just makes it harder to be hit. It doesn't mean that once you're hit, it will be, you know, a different type of hit. Um, because it really, it, it, it affects I, I your... I think it amounts to the same thing as hit, as hit points. It's pardon? Just, I think it amounts to the same thing as hit points. No, because it, it really amounts to sort of... it, it Armor um, reduces uh, effect on right. hit so like yeah, if it's going to be a se- severe effect then it'll be like the the level down effect i mean if you, i guess if you look at it like hit points um you only ever have the same amount of hit points regardless right but what i'm saying is armor gives you so like here's the fiction in both in both D and blades of the dark you get stabbed in D hit points say that wasn't as bad as it could have been in Blades in the Dark. Armor says that wasn't as bad as it could have been. They're both doing the same thing narratively, is what I'm saying. There, mm. there are differences mechanically. Like, yeah, mechanically. I'm, what I'm saying, both of those provide the same agency to the player. But, but armor, armor isn't something that's level dependent, uh, first of all, in Blades in the Dark, or you, tier dependent, or anything like that. It's just something that exists. Right, but you have to advance to get it, do you not? Pardon? Well, once you pick it as your starting option. Yeah, you just pick it as... It can be picked initially just as, like, maybe part of your character class, or uh, I can't remember exactly how the rules go, but there's there's different ways. There's ways to get more of it. There's ways... Like, so, like, like the heavy guy, uh, the cutter, right, can take something where he he treats heavy armor as, as light armor, or okay. I think, right? There, I mean, there's ways. There's ways you, that the game tunes that in order to make characters tougher. 
Yes, there is, but it's not universal, and it, which is a big difference, to, at least to yeah, me. Yeah, than just advancing hit points or growing hit points. Yeah, I don't know what to Like, not necessarily every character can get that. Um, but they where everything. Pardon? Oh, the veteran advances allow any character to get that. Right, I think you're. I think you're missing the point being made. I'm just. I'm just okay. trying to point out ways that we can avoid this feeling of starting at the beginning, and by um, getting rid of hit points. Even if we're not really getting rid of hit points, we're just sort of obfuscating how damage exists. Mm -hmm. We by doing that, um, we can um, create something that shows that in we're the same in the beginning as we are in the end and that helps create a feeling of like being of competence because if we assume after 10 sessions um we still have the same amount of hit points it's some it's a way we can look at that as players and be like oh like it doesn't change very much and we're sort of asking sort of that uh perception to do a lot of work but but it is something different than um D D where it's like it's impossible to think that your level one character uh is anything like a level 10 character i i do actually want to defend D, &D a little bit here it has to happen sooner or later right the stars well, have all i feel like for we've mostly been defending it the whole night <laughs> I usually don't, though. <laughs> I have been defending it. But I, I would say there is one thing that does stand out about a level 1 D&D character. Or actually, Pathfinder is a little bit better example of it. Okay, maybe I'm not supporting D&D quite as much then, but whatever. Point is that even a level 1 D&D character has a pretty broad range of things that they can do that makes them stand out as unique from the town guard. Like, the town guard might be level 3. Yes, they've got more health. They probably have less damage per hit, but they have a lot more health. However, the town guard is kind of only good at being a guard. That's all, all they're good for. Whereas your level 1 character they actually get things like a lot better saving throws they get a lot better skills for things like social interaction or stealth even if even if they're not good at those things they're still better than the town guardsman is like the generic npc does not feel as competent as like this other this level one character the downside is just that you're typically only going to see characters that are in terms of their specialization compared to your broad generic term i think that's kind of the problem there is that you're not going to really see the the guardsmen have to roll like charisma and diplomacy checks and such so it doesn't matter that they suck at it compared to your character it's like yeah your character isn't great at diplomacy at level one but they're a lot better than the guardsmen 
but the guard is never gonna be seen in that situation so you don't really feel that strong about it like you don't get to see yourself compared to somebody who sucks even more at it than you do oh okay see i see what your point is now okay But I do think that, like, your level 1 D&D character, they actually do have a lot more to them than your generic NPC. Okay. It's just you never actually get to see that because of the nature of the game. I mean, they have basically plot or protagonist armor on. Like, they, they have the ability to, to do things only just because they are being controlled by a player. Um, I mean, like, like we... Like you mentioned, like the guard is like level three, but really in D and D, how how NPCs are are statted out is they're statted out by by their was it combat rating or something? The CR, the whatever rating. Like, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Okay, uh, and like, um, and so like they're not they're just not given like they're not given a character sheet. They're just given a little plaque that says like this is the few things that I'm good at because I am a guard and. Um, it, it's as if the guard has absolutely no other skills or hobbies in their life. They, they, they are just guards. Yeah, but that's kind of the advantage of your character, is that you do have these other things. But the problem is, because the guard does not have these other things, you will never see the guard in the situation where they show off just how incompetent they are compared to the the player characters. So the player characters never really get that feeling that they're actually, they have the extra agency outside of the fact that they actually go out and do the things. So it feels like it's purely arbitrary that it's only because you're a player character that that you're good at these things or able to do them. And it's like, no, the guard could totally go out and do it. They just not going to because they're so completely incompetent at it that they don't even have like a rating in it. It's basically zero, but you never get to see that because they don't even try to do it. I think one of the best ways to make your low level characters feel competent is just to show somebody who sucks at it even more than they do. Yeah, I I kind of disagree. Uh I don't think in my in my experience winning a fight isn't a measure of like character competence. Um despite what everyone says that's sort of like the that's almost the given to D. Mm-hmm. uh if i was going to express character confidence for a beaming group i would actually give them like many other challenges um where stealth was important and like other skills became very important because then once you got to the fight you can say man we wouldn't have got here without all the other things that we had um my- I I agree with the premise there because, well, obviously, I mean, that's what I tried to do and how I built my game. But um, I I disagree to a, de- a little bit because the issue is in, in many 
RPGs. Like, not just D&D, but this is very common in a lot of them. At low levels, your the luck completely subsumes your skill. Like, you try to put somebody on a stealth mission. It's like, okay, most games... Okay, I have a plus five to my chance to do stealthy things, but my role is 1d20. There's a lot more luck involved if compared to like anything else. Like, I don't feel like I'm all that skilled because I have a higher chance of failure than I do of success. Not necessarily. Uh, that's sort of dependent on the game as it's set up, not your character. Uh, as in the, the main point being is like, sure, if your DM decides to make uh, every DC like 15 plus, like you're you're going to be fucked. But like I say, if you're trying to express like how if you're trying to help express how a character is. Um, more than a level zero or nothing, then I would do everything I could to sh allow that character to act in all the ways that they can. And sure, they'll fail at some. But I would just give them more options to act in different ways. Um, but um, I, I think what Kat's saying is the there's uh, the one of the ways D and D advances you is with luck mitigation, and uh, there isn't a lot of that at level playing. And whereas something like Blades of the Dark has a ton of luck mitigation, even right at the start. You yeah. Have and that's why Blades and Dark is better. But my point being is if you make your DC, <laughs> if you make your DC eight and you have a plus five, then you've done your luck mitigation. You don't need to make the DC 15. That's my point, because okay, well, you're playing with first level characters. So like you can do your own luck mitigation. It's not like incumbent on the game to sort of like do no, that. No, no, no. What I'm saying is no, no, no. That's you are. You're right. I'm not arguing with that particular point. But what I'm saying is there's no. The players have no ability for luck mitigation. So, like, um, the, the, the the GM has to be trusted at that point to do the luck mitigation for the players. Uh, and there's, like, the players don't have any abilities to reroll or to do something like where it's... Um, they're, 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 one of the ways you do advancement in certain games is through luck mitigation. And... Um, where you put that if you put that and usually what happens is that gets more put the the player gets to stack up more luck mitigation um the more advanced their character is so like in yeah. fate in fate you get more ability to reroll or you have to reroll less often um but you get stunts i think or another way you can do the same thing um and then in blades in the dark blades in the dark starts you off with a with a bunch uh, uh, Devil Bargain uh, gives you a bunch of luck mitigation. I mean, you can basically stress, Devil's Bargain, yeah, stress, resist, bargain, resist. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it, and I think to, to that extent, Blades in the Dark offers more more narrative agency because it's placing the emphasis on the player making choices when to intervene in luck rather than whether or not the player is lucky. So then is the chance of failure what 
is necessarily making you feel like your character is starting at level zero or not? Yeah, perhaps. Maybe it's something like the, the inability to intervene. I, I think it actually goes back to what I said earlier, which is that your agent, your agency feels much higher when you made a bad decision and that's what caused you to fail as opposed to just, oh, you rolled a one, I guess you fail. Like it, it feels like you had actually done something that caused an outcome in the world instead of just arbitrary stuff happening that you had no control over. I mean, not to bring back old conversations, but that's that's kind of where like I like mixed result like style games, uh, yeah. in which like 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 take a monster of the week for example. Like you get uh, like you can just outright fail, but there's there's a couple of levels between outright fail and outright success where there's like like success but caveat. Like um, mm. I mean, it's. It's it's weird using D and D as an example because like like one of the big things I was thinking of is like like okay you have a village mayor the village mayor is going to just inherently have diplomacy like there are village politics like regardless of what anyone says like like you do probably have to be somewhat politically and socially savvy to earn the position of mayor of a you know hundred person village um, the 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 random you know of like barbarian of the group is is not gonna like the mayor's probably you know equivalent of of level one you know player let's say but like they're like do you just jack up their diplomacy because the the barbarian is definitely not going to be able to out the diplomacy the mayor but um, i mean the barbarian probably shouldn't be the barbarian should be intimidating or something but like as luck would have it, you know, the mayor could biff whatever role. The mayor probably only has like a plus two to their diplomacy skill at level one or, or at whatever challenge rating that would equal. The it's it doesn't quite like like usually at that point that we go back to having to trust the GM because the GM's gonna have to step in and be like, hey, the mayor's a little bit more, you know, you know, savvy than that. Like he's not just some he's not just some asshole like farmer. Who became mayor? He's 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 an asshole farmer who became mayor because he's good, you know, talking to people. Like, yeah. right? I I think that if um, I think in my opinion or or how I would design is that if if um, if our chances at if our relative chances at success and failure change drastically as we level then i've probably failed that as a design designer um and so like i think that if if that's what is happening in a game then then it's m more of a weakness um i i would suggest that that's something to be avoided uh, uh, it's not always and some people like that but but that's that's my opinion on it it, I think if you if you instead of say failure, I think fail state, like because it depends on what failure does. Like in apocalypse world, powered by apocalypse games, 
failure is absolutely necessary. So it's like uh, in the burning wheel as well. Like failure is, you can't advance without it, literally. Um, and well, that's so, my point. Or, or I'm not trying to get rid of failure. I'm saying if that relative success failure changes through from level to level, then that's a failure of the game. That's a failure of the system. So like if I it's if it's harder to fail at level 10 then mm-hmm. uh then the system is actually failing. So power by the apocalypse is a failing system? It, no, it, I, I don't I believe that it is harder to fail. Um I think it it depends upon your relative um the difficulty of what you're attempting to do like if you're trying to do more difficult things then yeah you should actually have your increased capacity for skill should be met with increased challenges so that you're con- like you basically should have about a same level of difficulty or chance of success when facing things that are equal in difficulty to your skill. Mm. I don't think that's how confidence works. I, I, th- I think what happens is, is you get more consistent at doing more difficult things. Are so you I, talking about in-game or are you talking about in general? I'm talking about in general, but, but I think games do a bad job of representing it. I they think, do a horrible job. Okay, well, <laughs> what, but, but what I'm saying is like, should happen. What the, 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 the failure scenario you're describing, where, where you describe a game as a failure, is actually what happens. Where you become, what, if, you, if you practice at a skill, you become more competent um, to the point where you rarely fail and your successes actually mean more. You become more efficient at it. Um, so I think a game that so, that is trying to get there, but probably not doing a good job. So maybe I misspoke. Okay. Or not misspoke, but maybe I'll just adjust what I said to once we get to the point where we're too where success comes too easily, maybe we've come to the end of the the leveling system. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think. Because even no like a game like Apocalypse World, mm-hmm. um, it, it ends it, it, it doesn't end itself. It doesn't force itself to end, but it does say that there's, there's like a, a, a campaign length that is, works well for it. And they mm-hmm. sort of describe that and, 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 um, and maybe for D and D, it also exists, and maybe it's not level twenty, um, or maybe it's not a range of one to twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure, but that's how I kind of look when when the game fundamentally changes so much that we find failure the, for the character becomes quite difficult. Then I think we've we've really changed the game and I I would consider sort of like wrapping it up at that point. I, I think uh, at that point, 
I mean, historically, what I try to intend to do is just give the characters more to do. So they're, they're succeeding, right, at, at a higher rate per thing. But I, what works, what tends to work for me is um, force them to tackle a whole bunch of different stuff, like, at the same time. And then they have to choose where they're going to give up something or, you know, or, or they can't go back and try their failure again. They have to push on. But that's, that, that's some, again, that's something that most games don't explicitly tell you to do. It's, it, it more often explicitly will say, like, just make the numbers bigger. Um, and I don't, I don't think that, I mean, this just doesn't feel fun to me, but like the games I've played in and run where high levels of competence, like where individual tasks are, are happening easier than increase the number of individual tasks and that seems to do that seems to work if but some games really really chug along when that happens so you have to have a game where that sort of thing can be resolved relatively quickly and not something like you know any game where it takes four rolls to resolve an attack roll there's also oh sorry go right ahead oh catrice talk <laughs> Okay, there's one quick thing I do want to mention there, which is that it it comes down to player psychology in that in that there is a very well defined range of what um, people like your players consider to be acceptable uh, success rates, and it's in the sixty six to seventy five percent success range. If you get much lower than that, like even by a few points, your average player, not all of them, but a very large chunk of them start viewing it as a coin toss. They don't feel like there's any real reason to try to do something because it's like, well, I could fail too easily. It's like you have a 60% chance to succeed. It's like, yeah, but that may as well be 50%. And then you get the others opposite side if they have an 80% to succeed for some reason most people view 80% success rate as 100% (laughs) and they get really pissy if they don't succeed it's like I had 80% chance to succeed and it's like that's a 20% failure rate one in five tries you should fail but somehow that just doesn't click in the brain properly so horrible statistics and that's why they seem fake any that's why they're all they're all lies anyway uh (laughs) okay so what i actually wanted to talk about so i want to because this is already we're already like two hours in i want to get at least get a bit of the conversation i want to have out of the way that's okay with everyone yeah okay so uh, what is the difference between a game that starts uh, like most PPTA games start with an assumption that you are playing a basically competent human being? Well, I, I'm not way above that. You're playing an exceptional individual that has tools and is basically competent for what they're trying to do, and you develop into and you more or less actually stay at about that level despite gaining power. It, but the power is gained very incrementally. It's not universally applied. It's it, the power you gain is focused, and what the, the implications of that versus is 
D and D's curve, where you theoretically start as uh, as nothing or weak, and you eventually become a god slayer. Versus, like, uh, there's one specific power curve I want to also touch on while I'm talking about this, but I'm, uh, which is, uh. Specifically, Urban Shadow's power curve, where you start as a basically confident individual who can affect change in your city, and it's and you end being a player character at the point where you're a threat to the city. And it's people. <laughs> <laughs> By acquiring too much power. And I think I had something... I guess I'll just start by saying that, and then if I feel like saying more, I'll say more. So what was the question? Okay, the question is, like, what is the difference in feel and why would you go for one thing versus the other, uh, starting with basically confident characters that more or less stay at the same power level but get more focused in certain aspects and, like, develop in a, in a natural way? Like, they get better at doing what the game is about, but they're still just ba still theoretically in fiction around the same level of confidence versus people who ascend to godhood through the act of being player characters. I assume that part of that comes from just what the players want to get out of the game. Like, if you want to be playing something that you can picture as being yourself the entire way through the game, like, this is an avatar of myself and... I'm basically starting off as a normal individual, such as myself, and I want to still feel like myself at the end of the game. It's like, I, I don't could think see that, that has ever been my attitude towards a PvP no, game. But I, no, but if that is something that you wanted to do, then a PvP, a Powered by the Apocalypse game, would be much better suited to it than D&D. Whereas if you want a power trip where you become a god slayer, then it kind of helps to actually start feeling weak so that you can feel strong later on. Because if you just start very strong, then you don't really get that, you know, dopamine rush of getting better and being able to fight bigger and bigger things. Like there's almost like stages of like, I am able to do competent things in terms of my local area that I'm competent in terms of like the entire country, like I'm saving the kingdom, then I'm competent in terms of saving the world. Mm -hmm. If um, I think the the D&D &D curve the way I see it gives us two things. One is it fills the player desire for growth and and power. Mm -hmm. um, but it also fills the it it necessarily creates a situation where a long campaign is required to sort of um reach those points so it's um it it's a uh, it forces the the campaigns which is good for the the game company itself uh keeps people playing actually it's good for the uh, type of games too 
because one thing and, you'll notice about most Powered by the Apocalypse games is that they're all fairly short campaigns. Like, you're not really meant to play, like, a 50-session game for the most part. They're usually more like, you know, five, maybe ten. Yeah. Uh, uh, most of what I play gets around 50. Uh, 25-ish. Uh, I will say I have played 50, I have played a 50-session game of masks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I expect there to be outliers in there, especially yeah. with Kavar. Yeah, and sorry, was, was just... Kavar. Yeah, and, and you're because right. Because you're and... very unique. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so that's where I think, like, the benefits of, like, the D&D curve, but, like, I think, like, you you brought up a curve that I was not really familiar with. The one, what, how did you describe it about helpful okay, to the city so and a urban, threat to the city? For Urban Shadows, you start as like somebody who's basically capable. You're basically strong enough to affect change in the city to help, and you're generally expected to use that amount of power to uh you know help guide the city uh by the end of the power curve due to the most due to the most effective efficient way of gaining power in urban shadows and like what gives you the most power uh by the end of the power curve you have turned yourself into a th into a credible threat to the to the life of the city <laughs> right so this is really interesting and i never i mean i'm sure there's lots of game power curves that i've haven't seen or addressed um but this is interesting because it it actually directly affects the narrative um like in a specific way um so that's really interesting because it it bookends the narrative uh so i think it gives us the characters um I mean, maybe the players don't know, but I, I'm just speaking. I haven't played it, but it but it sort uh, of does the give this. Players 100 no. Okay. It has a very so good, it creates a uh, situation where you get to sort of narratively um, explore the uh, area between two known known points, um, and I think that is an interesting way of going through levels. Um, there's actually. It's not the only game that does that, but in the sense that the levels directly create this issue um, or power gain, uh, that's really interesting. Like, there's lots of games that you know where they end, um, but they don't always level their way there. Yeah, I mean, you're not guaranteed to reach the point where uh, you have uh, gone power gone power through corruption to the point where you know you have a lot of power and your and the abilities it says you have are probably a legitimate threat to the well-being of people because uh, the specific power the specific sub power curve I was talking about in that game is. Uh, they have a bunch of extremely powerful moves that grant you a, a currency called, well, an experience track called Corruption. <laughs> mm. So that's, mm -hmm. that's one of its main gimmicks. It does the Corruption, like, style of things way better than I find the World of Darkness things. Like, World of Darkness theoretically gives you power for corrupt, like, you get the most supernatural power by go by abandoning your humanity and becoming awful and like moving away from humanity. But generally the power creep there doesn't feel real. I don't know how to describe it better. 
Yeah. It's not as tangible to me. And I just wanted to put that out as an specific example, even though it's not useful because it resonates with me a lot when I'm thinking about these things. Yeah. And and then if I was to like address like the last power curve that you presented, um, it it's um I think it allows like for the narrative just to breathe in the sense of like we, the, that's something that's limiting on the D D power curve is like you necessarily have to start out fighting kobold or kobold like creatures and you necessarily have to end fighting dragon or dragon like creatures. Um but in apocalypse world or say dungeon world world specifically is you can fight kobolds throughout the whole thing or you can fight dragons throughout the whole thing uh it doesn't matter um uh which means that from point a to point b uh can be about fighting dragons the whole time but it can also be sort of still about narratively how you get from point a to point b without uh having to drastically change the the sort of plot um of the mm-hmm. whole story yeah make it clear that people are moving forward and getting better but without uh like changing the scope like they tend to yeah want exactly to the, the scope, scope doesn't have to change yeah whereas D requires it uh but it's in the dark actually has a in, if we're talking like abstracted to this point, Boyd's in the Dark as a kind of it's a smaller scale D and D curve where you go from just like some guys in uh, some guys in uh, the top four of some building to a massive criminal empire mm-hmm. over the course of play. <laughs> some massive yeah, criminal empire. totally other different fucking. I mean, I mean, it could be a massive criminal empire. Like after like. 15 sessions the last game i ran it was like they were a cult at the bottom of a once possessed demonic church with gates in the base it was bananas yeah yeah yeah, you know massive criminal empire uh literally making uh literally controlling an underworld you know same thing really yeah 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 Yeah, blades tries to blend them by by having a large power scale while maintaining you're still fighting effectively the same foes um or the same type of foes i mean i know there's a a fluctuation there but like the blue coats are always an issue whether you're on level tier zero or tier three or four or whatever well if they're on tier five you probably own them that's what's interesting is like you can where you're just like no they're not a problem anymore or tier five and tier three, maybe, and it, it might mean if you have your focus of like how you're defeating them, sure. But if you have your focus somewhere else, they'll always be there as a thorn, right? Like I've never played a game up to tier five, but like um, if I was GMing and uh, I would just say that in the beginning you were fucking around with like the 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 effort that the blue coats were putting into sort of dealing with you were at a certain level um that they were you were necessarily de- dealing with lower tier characters but uh yeah well yeah. well i think the- but that would change as you advance right like when you became more of a problem to the blue coats the blue coats would throw more at you well i think well i mean the way i did it is the, once the players got past where the the tier where the blue coats were, I had them 
upset other factions that were higher level. So like they, they, you know, if the blue coats were in, in the interested in crime beforehand, now the, uh, I can't remember the names of the bronze masked dudes, uh, the, the higher level guys, they, they became like whatever order of society was at that tier was the, was the enemy. Oh God, I can't and remember their name either. But the, but the, Exactly who you're talking about, and I'm annoyed I can't remember their name. The It's not the Unseen. The Unseen are the criminal half of it. Yeah. It, it, um, the yeah, Wardens? Spirit Wardens. Spirit yeah. Wardens. And I feel like at, at a certain scale of criminal yeah, empire, uh, you either change from the blue coats to the actual comp to being a government-level issue, and they just start saying the military after you... <laughs> 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 it was like it's like a GTA but yeah, yeah. Or, or like uh, what I was gonna say is, or they have to up the funding of the blue coats because suddenly there's this gang that came out of nowhere right. and got to tier. yeah. <laughs> it's sending confident people after. You. It is interesting when we do talk about like length, so because um, I don't know about urban shadows but like you said a lot of pbta and like 10 to 20 mid cavaliers get down to 25 on a lot of them but i've heard like 10 to 20 is pretty common yeah uh D, who knows it can just be whatever it seems anywhere from like 50 to 100 was not out of the question D, uh, if you, you know, play by the rules uh i think most additions on their lighter power curve are are something like seven on average a couple hundred combats. Uh, I forgot what it was. It's ridiculous, though. A couple hundred combats to level all oh. the way through the game. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's they also expect that, yeah. you to go through several combats per session. Yeah. Which yeah. I do don't have think I've actually thing. experienced that like ever. I think uh, yeah. uh, so. We could probably call it like fifty to two hundred sessions. It's probably not out of the question. Like, yeah, that's about how long. Yeah, um, yeah but there's a reason most D and D campaigns do not actually reach max level. Right. But <laughs> but but then uh, yeah, like I I mean I don't know again, but I heard from I think it was actually from John Harper that you know the Blades in the Dark is like a 40 to 50 session campaign and it's usually you know not necessarily it's not like you've maxed out the game but you've you've probably explored a lot of what you need to explore um, or want Which to. Which is uh, odd because so, Rob's mentioned that usually he finds Blades in the Dark peters out at what like 7 to 12 sessions? Tends to, for me at least. But that's, I, uh, other people have had that same issue. Yeah. Yeah, that seems very far off from fantasy fashions. Yeah, no, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. No, right. and, but I, go through all the tiers. Yeah, probably that's about right. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. if you're filling out your. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Aaron, do you have do, well Rob do you have anything like specifically that you wanted to sort of address and what you're working on I don't oh, oh, oh sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, go I'll for give it, yeah. 
moment. Uh, I want to fill it out a bit more first, but I, I can talk about like what the structure is basically. I mean, the structure is is uh, functionally it it you can do another session zero. That's in a nutshell how it works. So uh, each instance of character advancement is also filling in backstory or filling in front story. Like it's it's hmm. when you advance your character, you're either laying track for yourself to do something, or you're going into your past to remember something you either already did and forgot, suppressed, ignored, something like that. You had an experience, somebody told you something, there was some wisdom there, you ignored it, you go back, you outline what it was, what made you ignore it, and then unpack that and use it in the present. And then if you do stuff in the present, that uh, that writes the story now. And then um, planning to do stuff is what puts threads into play. And that uh, allows you to do basically setting up future stuff, but also sets up um, crisis moments. And crisis moments are the kind of thing that you need to prepare by going back into your past and finding out the stuff you ignored and then bring that stuff into the present and then back into the past of the so forth and so on. So the, the structure, the structure is you are continually doing session zeros on yourself, the communities around you and the society. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite uh, structures for, um, and to be clear, I've never really, officially played or or made anything like this but when i think of like um i like looking at kind of a blank slate in the beginning of the game but i like sort of like teasing out the history of a character as you advance like like kind of like where does that come from and i don't necessarily mean advanced sense of like but per level but just as we advance throughout the story like i like the idea of like going back and teasing out the past and like how does this thing affect you and and where in the past have you dealt with this before or I, it's it's one of my favorite ways of like building a character throughout play as opposed yeah. to writing down everything about your character up to the that point and then starting in the game Right, um, right. Well, the, it's the only thing that allowed me to do the thing that I was trying to do, which is to have the player characters have participated in the apocalypse through their own um, shadow traits. So, like, the things that made them ignore the wisdom that they're looking for in the present are the same features at scale in society that caused the Day of Wrath. So, the idea is that when they go back, they are setting up the social ills through their own like experience figuring out why those were bad and then coming bringing that wisdom back into the the present in order to affect the problem they're having because the problem they're having is going to be stemming from the problem that was created on the day of wrath by this particular social bent that they all participated in necessarily by virtue of doing it yeah cool thank you you had something you wanted to express, Kat? Yeah, actually. Um, it was when you were bringing up like different 
narrative structures and the increases over time, like basically progression via narrative. Mm -hmm. That actually did make me think about how I'd set that up for my game, and it was very intentional. It was like, there's basically three main structure points in the game, and listening to how Rob described it, actually, that gave me another point that can be used to describe it, is like when you first start out the game, your character doesn't really know who they are. They're starting out with trying to figure out who they are, what they want, and dealing with what had been their backstory. So basically figuring out the past and sorting it into the present. That basically is like your level 1 to level 10 region. Once you get to level like 11 to 20, that's built around the concept that now that you've sorted out enough that you can actually start worrying about other things, like you're base like you started out the game, you were not fit for dealing with the outside world yet. You were barely able to deal with your inside world. So you have to fix that first. And once you fix yourself, then you can start applying yourself out. Where it's like, okay, now how do I figure out my place in the world in relation to established structures? Mm -hmm. And this is setting up your front story. So things like um, joining actual factions and such is part of like, the actual progression like your prestige yeah. classes literally come with responsibilities to a faction with them like you're not just oh well i get this special class i get new abilities it's like you also get new responsibilities to go with it you have people that now want you to do things but that sets up things for you to do in the future and new responsibilities, new reasons for why you're doing stuff. But it's more externalized than it was before, but it's within what's basically established. So like until that point, it's all internal, then it moves to external, but it's still within the structure of society that's present. And then when you move to the end of the game, like the very end of it, it's basically, how do I now figure out how to create new structures which will change the world on my terms instead of within the terms of somebody else? So that's basically when you've basically finished the game, like this is the end of the story arc, like your character can now change the world. They can actually be the one who is creating a new faction all by themselves kind of thing. You yeah. can end the game there, or you can go and explore what happens after that point, but that's basically the three stages that you go through. So that, those are like the described, your described advancement are... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the meta plot of the game that's built into the setting, the the class progression system, like your ascension to godhood, every all of that's built explicitly in those stages. So you can actually see 
things changing in a very discreet manner. Yeah, I mean, I think it, there there are games that that take you on that path, um, but they don't they aren't so explicit about what you're doing at each stage. It's sort of, again, it sort of relies on. I mean, some games some games kind of do or get, get explicit about that, but I think those are those rare. I think it's I think your your most games expect you to take the power curve. Power curve suggests you take it, uh, but I, I like personally. I like having delineated modes um, because, as a GM, that gives me better grip on like what I'm supposed to be doing in the story. So, like, you know, uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord uh, is a game where. You advance for fairly quickly. It's it's sort of meant to be like a condensed experience. Like it, it even suggests running like just one level uh, per session. So you do ten levels and the game's done. Um, mm -hmm. But it's the kind of thing where you do end you you end the like at level ten capable of fighting. Um, you're capable of probably fighting something like the demon lord itself, like the, the big bad of the setting. Um, even though you probably won't, you might not win, but you could. Uh, but it's the kind of thing where the game sort of does this ah, mad dash. Uh, and the fact that you like click over to level 10 doesn't really feel like a different click over from level nine, but like it enables you to shit, uh, like fight the, the big bad of the setting that the setting's literally named after. Um, so it's, it doesn't have that, but, but it not having that explicit feel and that like feel not being built into the, what is it like the player's fiction? In a sense, like that not being built, it, it, the times I've run Shadow of Demon Lord, uh, I ran it for my brother and his group way back, not way back, three years ago, and they got to level ten and, and did the big finale fight, and it was fun, but it was like if I were to write a story of that game, I would have to add chapters to make it make sense. Like I, if I just like wrote ten to ten sessions of like what happened, it it would sound completely bonkers. Like there is there's there's almost not enough time for for the rate of advancement to make any kind of sense from them being captured in like a car with by beastmen with spears like like pointy sticks to like slaying the big bad of the setting in like. I don't know, 30 days time, something like that. It's, 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 it's a really... Any explanation as to why the, the people who are labeled PCs are the people who acquire power at absurd rates in that? There's no, there's no like suit, there's no, nothing like that. There's no like, these guys are imbued with the power, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 it's like, there's... Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, but the power curve is really damn 
fast, like for what it, what it's, what it does. Um, and so it's just an example of like how, how that, why I like the delineation of tiers a bit better because that game blends them to a degree where it's, you don't even, you can't, yeah, you don't even see it almost like it's, it's, it's happening before. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I like, I like that sort of delineation. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I have that delineation in ashes, but I, it, it, I think it's a, I'm going for a more organic flow to it. So once you start being able to affect things on a, on larger than just a personal scale, the game mm. world naturally opens up a little bit more and then allows you to, once you start interacting with competence on the community scale, then that allows you to like do things on the scale up from that, which is like social across the city or even in between in, in between uh, cities or stuff like that once, but, but it, it, there's a more organic progression to it because I don't have levels. It's just like character creators. Like you don't, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but at the way it is up, up there, um, it, the, there's no synchronicity between anybody's advancement and anybody else's. Like you're all limited by the same thing, which is you each get like one time turn and basically a chance to make a move. And you either go back in the past and do something, or you, uh, you know, set something up in the future, or you do something in the now. And, um, but all anybody can be doing different stuff. So somebody could be advancing the rate, but not affecting things in the present and which is building up some bad stuff in the future. Um, or somebody could be like just doing stuff in the present, which is taking care of a lot of different uh, proximal threats, but not digging into themselves or advancing very much. So I, I, I'm not sure how this is going to work. I have a feeling that it's going to kind of even out as players kind of watch each other and be like, oh, he's got more skills than I do. Maybe I should go back and, uh, you know, uh, find a community to learn a skill or something like that um, as my next action. Um, but it's, mm. it's like, it's going to, it's going to be, people aren't going to advance at the same rate. Um, I, so I don't I'm, know because I, I don't everything know else in your game, everything else in your game has been very carefully and meticulously built so that when you want the players to do something, they are nudged and guided in that direction. This is like really bizarre hearing you say something that like, well, I'm hoping the players just look at each other and figure it out on <laughs> their own because this is like completely out of character for everything else about Ashes and Magi. Yeah, a little bit, I guess, but it's, <laughs> it's the point at which you're supposed to this is the skill that I think should be generalizable outside of the game is that looking at other people that are doing the thing you want to have happen and then copying them for a while until you get to the place where you can do the thing that you want to do and then going off on your own and doing something else. And then like, I think that's, that's the, that's the, that's the thing I want to have happen during sessions is like, 
I, I still think it might be good if there was a little bit of leading or nudging players into that to start with, just enough to get them running, but not have it as a, as like an enforced mechanic that keeps trying to reinforce its play loop. Just right. something that get, gets them into the loop and then lets it go from there. Yeah, it's not... Well, the thing is, is like you're... Once you start... So the game only hands you a couple of uh, bare bones things for you to decide, and then you're off and running, and you're in the play loop because you want to do stuff. And if you don't want to do stuff, I don't know why you're at the table, <laughs> fundamentally. So it, the game assumes you're going to do something uh, and then lays out um, several arenas for you to do something in. And depending on what you want for your character, that's the arena you get good at. Um, and all the arenas should be a viable way to do stuff, but not all in the same way at, in, all, in all cases. So you're going to, you know, it, it will be possible, for example, if, if all you did was try and remember and recollect and rediscover ancient knowledge, you'd be a scholar archetype. You, but you would spend most of your like turns in the past dredging stuff up and you would be getting really good at a bunch of stuff and uncovering, you know, valuing different types of arcana and uh, learning all about that kind of stuff. But you wouldn't be doing a lot of stuff in the present, you, but you would be building up quite a sizable amount of ability such that when you really needed to act, you could act incredibly decisively, but you couldn't act, you wouldn't be acting in the present all that often. So it's one kind of character type generated by the decisions you're making that could be exactly what a player wants. But it would hopefully, because this is incremental, right? You're only, you're not building this character all at once, you're building them step by step. Whatever you do will be what your character is good at. And so it should, if I'm doing it right, then the play style that the player wants will be realized in the character, will just fit what they want. And if, I, if that's not happening, then I'm, uh, there's a disconnect in the design somewhere. But that's the goal. It's like, so the, whatever the player wants to do is how the character acts. And the character acts in a way that where their trade-offs are meaningful, meaning the amount of time they spent learning means they can have an outsized effect, um, but they're gonna have fewer, they're gonna have an outsized effect in one area, but fewer times, whereas somebody that spends a lot of time um, doing stuff in the present is gonna have effects across multiple domains but they not, may not be advancing as quickly or recovering from uh, dealing with their loss or, or, or trauma that they had. So The main thing I would suggest for that is just make it absolutely clear that the players know at the start that they are building something up and it will have a payoff later on kind of thing, because if it does not clearly state that, 
And especially if it's like a slow, gradual process that they're building up power eventually, but they don't realize they're building up power, then that could be an issue. But as long as they know about it, should be fine. Yeah, that is one of the conceits of the game. And, you know, being, being a fate wizard, I can literally say, I can tell you what the reward is going to be for this action because you can see it. It's going to be a consistent reward. Like, if you go here and learn from this community, you're going to learn something about this arcana. Okay, that's, and you can just do that. that. So, like, you can dictate how you want to advance and then do the thing that will get you that advance and then do that as often as you want, basically. And then act as often as you want in the now and then set up things in the future, like, for you to, instead of just dredging up stuff from the past and dealing with your past trauma, like, learning new stuff but that it requires taking action in the present. So there's a, the amount of future stuff you do is relative to the amount of time you spend setting up those things in, in the present, which means you're not attending to the stuff that could lead to. So there's also, there's a balance there as well to, to be maintained. So, yeah. But again, it's the kind of thing where the, I hope, I hope the game allows for, players to find their optimal path forward rather than and then the motivations you have for those things like the kind of things you affect are are the things that sort of dictate what problems are going to be coming up in the game for because that's those are the kind of experiences that you want to interact with and so those are the problems that seek you out more or less hmm. uh -huh. i mean that is hopefully clear progression. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea of like making the progression moves, so like anything you do in the game is basically like a power by the apocalypse move, where it's like you, you want to go do a thing, it triggers this mechanic, and then that's like the story point, that's the story thread, and then you can follow that, go in with that, and then, or you can start a different thing, but it's basically like a triggered move, and then within the triggered, there are, there's more granular mechanics. So it's not one yeah. of the things that always bugged me about Power, Power of the Apocalypse uh, stuff is like the the role felt like it was just a little bit too encompassing of for some fictional situations. Uh, I mean, some people really like the fact that combat can be resolved in one role. Power by the Apocalypse, and I think for the sake of it being a consistent game, that's how. But for me, that always felt a little letdown-y. And I know Dungeon World kind of played that in having more of a back and forth, but I, don't, I didn't like the way Dungeon World did either. So I guess this is my answer to that. Okay. So, question then. Did Kavar manage to cover all the things that he wanted to cover? More or less. Uh... Not really, but I don't think <laughs> it'd be practical to try to do that. How's that for an answer? This discussion turned into a different discussion than I intended it to be, but that's fine. Yeah, I wandered a little bit farther than I had expected it to as well. Like, this is outside of, like, even our normal wandering. I mean, we did talk about advancement. It's just that advancement encompasses a bunch of different stuff that's not advancement. Yeah, it does, but it's 
we I feel like we should have stayed zoomed out a bit more in my opinion okay so what you're saying is we have to cover this again next week got it that's not what I'm saying (laughs) I think we need to write a better outline yeah (laughs) but uh, yeah I I think we'll call it here unless somebody else has something they want to bring up I am good for now okay we'll talk about something else next week unless somebody (laughs) has a guest they want to invite no, we're talking about the same topic. We're going to do this forever until we get it right. <laughs> we probably could, but the, the, I mean, that does sound, also sound like hell, so. <laughs> but, 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 but don't you want to progress and gain levels in this one topic? That. You <laughs> saw that eyebrow waggle. <laughs> It's amazing how I could hear that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I forgot this is both an audio and visual medium. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, jeez, cat. Anyway, good night. All right, good night, everybody. Good Thanks night, everyone. Fun. Thanks for joining us. Have a good night. <laughs> <laughs>